Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the reading of your word. And I thank you, Lord, for this congregation. As you have brought every one of us together, you brought us to worship and to love one another. Lord, sometimes in our everyday life, everyday living, week to week, we struggle with how to live out this Christian walk, how to imitate Christ in all that we do. Even though, Father, slavery is now outlawed in our time, we do have people of authority over us. And as employees, sometimes we struggle. Sometimes even in our lives, we struggle with the lack of freedom that we desire and we want. But Lord, your word shows us how to be obedient under authority. And so, God, I pray that the words of Paul here in Ephesians 6 would speak to our souls this morning. What does it mean to live in this day and age where we think we're slaves and where our lives are controlled by others? What does that mean for us as your people? Teach us, Lord, we pray. Let this time be yours. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. This quote is something that uh, I found in preparation for today's sermon that I thought was amazing. Every one of us has a desire for freedom. There's something in the human spirit that we wish to, to be free. Amen? Would you all agree? I mean, it even begins with the littlest children. If, you, if you've ever been around a, a toddler or a baby and you're trying to hold them and they want to go somewhere, what do they do? They're going to kick and scream and squirm and wiggle. And uh, my boys did the same thing, right? Uh, they, they don't like being con- confined. I mean, there's something in the human spirit. We don't like being out of control. We want to be in control. Listen to this. This quote is very profound. There is a path to freedom. Its milestones are obedience Honesty, cleanliness, sobriety, hard work, discipline, sacrifice, truthfulness, and love of your homeland. Does that sound very profound? We'll read that one more time. There is a path to freedom. Its milestones are obedience, honesty, cleanliness, sobriety, hard work, discipline, sacrifice, truthfulness, love of your homeland. That's a quote that you'd want to put on your wall, isn't it? These are words to live by. These sound like words of strength. These sound like sound words that we could set a guideline by to live well and to live free. But this phrase, let me tell you where this phrase comes from. It was painted on the ceiling of the shubrarum, literally the shoving room at Dachau. If you know where Dachau was, Dachau was one of the most horrific concentration camps in Nazi Germany. These words were painted on the ceiling of the room where Jews were brought in and shoved into a room like cattle and stripped naked and beaten and put into prison. And they had to read these words as they were coming into the concentration camp. Can you imagine that kind of mental torture? You know you're, go- you're losing your freedom. 
and you come into this place of death and you read these inspiring words that were written by the Nazis. Freedom is something that is precious. It is something that is basic to the human spirit and it can be distorted and and misused by people of authority, masters over slaves, employee employers over employees, parents over children. Wherever we are as human beings, there seems to be this level of authority. It's a biblical principle in God's creation. God is the supreme sovereign authority over all things, and there is a right order to things. But in the fallen sinful state of man, we can take something that God makes as good with authority and submission, and we can distort it, and it becomes evil. And so in our day and age, when we read this passage of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, dealing with slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. When we read that verse in our minds, we have the filter of American slavery of the Africans to the imprisonment of the Jews by Nazi Germany to a number of horrific abuses throughout human history. So we have to understand, as Paul is writing this, this was many, many centuries before the atrocities that we have seen in the 20th century and the 19th century. We must understand that as Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus, he's now writing to slaves and masters who themselves were part of the church. And it's important for us as we read this text not to be so distorted in our thinking that all masters and all slavery is an abomination to God, even though I, I don't want to go so far as to say that we have to make slavery uh, legal again. That's not where we're going. Clearly, the Christian church has shown abusive slavery is wrong. Slavery in its basic fundamental understanding where human beings have no freedom of their own destiny is fundamentally against God's will. But we have to read here what Paul is writing to the Ephesians here in chapter 6. It's interesting when we come to this text in Ephesians, it seems like Paul is, is giving guidelines here to masters and slaves as if he is approving of slavery. But then that seems to contradict what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 as Tim Cody opened up our our service today. By reading Romans chapter 6 verses 15 through 23, Paul makes it very clear that slavery of of the Christian means slavery to righteousness. We as Christians are called to be slaves. And see, this is why it's difficult for us in the church today to maybe... uh, reconcile the evil of slavery with this call of Christ that we are slaves to Christ. I don't want to do that. I'm an independent thinker. I'm an American. I've got freedom. How dare you tell me I'd be a slave to Christ, right? And we struggle against that, don't we? But we are. We are slaves as Christians to the blood of Christ. We are slaves to righteousness, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6. 
Listen to what he says. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? But by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's what the definition of slavery is. You, you are under the authority of someone else and you must obey that master. You must obey that Lord. Now, as Christians, we willingly come to the cross of Christ. As God's Holy Spirit convicts us and draws us to repentance, we present ourselves to Christ as obedient slaves. Some of you may be really thinking in the back of your mind, you know, I have never thought of myself as a slave of Christ. Because this idea of free will, which is a right idea, has also been taught incorrectly in thinking that we as individuals, as human beings, have the free will to choose whether or not we wish to be Christians, or we have the free will to choose whether or not we wish to submit to Christ's authority. That can, that's, that's further from the truth of the biblical account here. Something, somehow, God in the mystery of the gospel not only convicts us through the Holy Spirit and changes our will to be His will, somehow He still, in that mystery, harmonizes the fact that we are still free will thinking people. But God does not submit His sovereignty to our will. We as... Christians, as fallen sinners, submit our will to His. That's how we must understand what this means. Free will does not mean that we as individuals just, we don't come to Christ until we're ready. No, that's the farthest thing from the gospel. God will chase us down like the hound of heaven, the great poem says, and whether you want to come to Christ or not, when God wants you, He's going to come after you. You can run away all you want, but if you're a slave to Christ, you obey and you belong to Him. Amen? That goes totally against my will. But thank God I have a Savior who did not submit His authority to my will. Amen? Isn't that, that's the gospel. God's not going to submit anything to us. We submit to Him. So what is Paul talking about in Romans chapter 6? When he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? That's the fundamental principle of obedience as slaves. You have a master over you that you submit to. Now, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about uh, you, you can either be an obedient slave to sin... Or you can be an obedient slave to righteousness. Which is it going to be? So that's fundamental to what Paul is speaking about. When he uses the language of slavery and mastery, theologically and spiritually, he's looking at this idea of our souls. We are either obedient slaves to sin or we are obedient slaves to righteousness. And if you are an obedient slave to sin, where does that lead in Romans 6.23? It leads to death. But if you're an obedient slave to Christ in the gospel and righteousness, you have eternal life guaranteed. You see, Paul uses this human allegory of slavery and masters to teach obedience because this was a very real 
situation of the Greco-Roman world. It was so fundamental to the economy of the Greco-Roman world that you were either a slave or you were a master at that time. That The, the economic structure of the Greco-Roman world was not the free market economy that we're used to today. It was an economy built on slavery and indentured servants. That was the day that Paul lived in. This was the day that the first century church thrived under. And so Paul, when he's using the human allegory of slavery and masters, everyone would have understood what that meant because it was so common to the reality of their day. And so he uses this in Romans chapter 6, you are going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to eternal life. Which is your master? Is your master sin or is your master eternal life through Jesus Christ? And that was the, that was the, the tension. And, and, and it was so fundamental to the ancient world, everyone would have understand. But even then, there was a tension in the Roman and Greek worlds of what is the ethics and the morality behind our slavery system? They were wrestling with it even then. But here's what Paul says. Even if you find yourself as a slave, you obey from your heart. Wherever your heart is committed to, wherever your heart is submissive to, that is where you obey. So if your heart is submissive to sin, you're going to obey sin. If your heart is submissive to righteousness and the gospel, you will be a a slave to that. Now, Paul uses the same comparison of slavery and and masters in Ephesians chapter 6. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 9, again, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now, Paul is using this same comparison in the Christian household. Remember, all of chapter 5 and leading into chapter 6, Paul is now spelling out to the Ephesian church these Greek Christians, these Gentile Christians. What does it mean to imitate God? What does it mean to walk as children of light? It means to be submissive to Christ. As the church submits to Christ, you submit to the world, to your earthly masters is what he's talking about. We don't submit to the worldly, uh, the worldview of sin and, and disobedience. Instead, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling as if you, as you would submit to Christ. Now, what does this look like? See, this this imagery of the household here is the continuing imagery. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, wives submit to your husbands. In verse 25, husbands love your wives. And then last week we looked at chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, children obey your parents and fathers do not provoke your children to anger. And now he's continuing with this theme of the household, now talking about the slaves. Because in the Greco-Roman world, a household did not just consist of a mother and a father and two and a half children. In the Greco-Roman world, the idea of the household included the, the, the master of the house, which was the father, 
and then the wife, the mother, and then the children, but also the household was in, was understood as the extended servants of the household. Everybody who lived in the house, worked in the house, worked in the family uh, agricultural business or the merchant business or whatever it was, you always had an extended family of servants and those who you employed. And so Paul is saying, okay, Christians... If you have a household and you are responsible for that household, you're also responsible for those under your care, those servants, those slaves that are part of your household. If you are a Christian as a slave or a servant, you would live in a household and you would work in a household. They didn't have factories to go get a job in. They didn't have offices downtown to go drive to and sit in a cubicle for 12 hours a day. Some of us are thinking, wow, that's slavery in itself. Maybe let's go back to the ancient world and go live in a house with somebody has got money. They'll take care of me. That sounds awful good sometimes. But see, this is the idea of the Greco-Roman world. The household would have been parents, children, household servants. And so this idea in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, in the English Standard Version, translates the word slaves. These would have been bond servants. These would have been household servants. Some of them would have been indentured servants. Some of them would have been born into slavery. Others would have been considered, some would have been considered property. Others would have been considered uh, servants that were working toward their independence. It was a kind of a mix of all of this. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, the English Standard Version translates the, the Greek word here, slaves. The King James Version translates this word servants. The New King James uses the term bond servants. And even the New International uses the term slaves. So you have to understand, we cannot look at this from the filter of the American enslavement of Africans in the 19th and, or the, uh, the, the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries is what I'm trying to say. It's a much different perspective here. Slavery in the ancient world was understood in two different ways. And this was the, this was the debate in the ancient world about slavery. Either slavery was an economic slavery or it was a political slavery. And Christians have wrestled with this over the centuries and clearly look at the morality of this on both sides. The political slavery is what we're used to and our understanding. Political slavery is the enslavement of an entire people group. For the purpose of political advancement, we think about the African slaves. We think about the Jewish imprisonment in the, in the concentration camps of World War II. A, a, a political slavery is usually under the thumb of a tyrant. And that is our understanding of slavery today. And there was some of this in the ancient world as well, plenty of that. In, even in the Old Testament, when you read about the Chaldeans coming and, and, and enslaving the Jewish people, they were that was political slavery, coming and, and taking a people group and taking them off into bondage and slavery. The Jews understood this throughout their entire history. Every time they went into exile, they, this was political slavery for them. At this, what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6 is more around the economic slavery. This would be enslavement of some within a community. In other words, you don't go and enslave an entire people group. Those who were in the slavery system or the bondservant system of the ancient Greek, Greco-Roman world, this was more of an economic reality rather than a political en- uh, enslavement. 
This would have been, here's, here's what Aristotle says about this. He's, he defines a household in the ancient world as this. Aristotle says a complete household consists of slaves and freemen. He continues and says, the first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. This was the fundamental understanding of the Greco-Roman world of a household. This is what Paul's talking. So he's continuing here this conversation of Ephesians 5 and 6 of wives and husbands and children and parents talking about how does the household of a Christian walk as imitators of God? So now he's focusing on the slaves and the masters. Now here's something to understand about the ancient world as well. This economic slavery system, it is very widely understood by scholars. It is estimated that 85 to 90 percent of the inhabitants of Rome were slaves or of slavery origin. That tells you the extensive nature of this slavery system. 85 to 90 percent of the inhabitants, and I use the word inhabitants because it wasn't just citizens. Citizens of Rome were never enslaved. Citizens of Rome had the freedom to not be enslaved. But if you were not a citizen of Rome, but you lived under the Roman economic system of that day, you were probably under the slavery or bondservant system. So unless you all in this room, if you thought about yourself living in the Greco-Roman world, unless you had a lot of money and you were able to buy your citizenship in Rome, you were probably going to be a slave. Now, can you imagine being a Christian under that system? Can you imagine coming to a new faith, knowing that you have no freedom? And then when you read Paul in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You would have come to this faith thinking, Wait a minute, I'm now released from my slavery. And Paul's saying, No, you're not. You see where we're going? You can imagine being in this, in this economic system of, of you are either chattel slavery like property or you are in the, the serfdom uh, system of being a bond servant where you could work your way out of uh, your servitude or you could be a, a wage slavery where you were actually exploited uh, for your labor and you could come to the faith thinking, I'm looking for my release from this slavery. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, no, you're still going to be here. That's what Paul is telling them. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey those in authority over you, even your masters and lords, who run the household where you are kept and fed and sheltered and, and employed You serve your earthly masters as you would Christ. Now verse 6, he says, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, if you are in this position of a slave, a bondservant in the Greco-Roman world, then you may think that you're going to be free from this bondage when you come to the faith. But Paul says, no, you stay in the household that you're in. You serve your master well as if you were serving Christ. 
How many of us, and I mean, clearly we can make the connection in our modern day with a job, employment, because if, even if you were a bond servant or even if you were chattel slavery and seen as property, it was understood in the ancient world that masters should treat their slaves justly. They should actually employ them. Right? They should be seen as employers rather than collectors of property. You see, masters were citizens of the state, and these masters, part of their rights as citizens, they were actually provided with a sufficient number of suitable slaves or servants to help them do what needed to be done. Slaves were seen as human tools of the state. That's what they were seen as. Very similar today. If you've got a job in a factory, you're just a human tool to keep the factory running. Amen? That's really what you're there for. And so Paul is saying, if you are in that situation, if you are an employee, if you are, if you are just seen by the corporation as just another number or another cog in the wheel, what is your role? You serve your earthly masters with a sincere heart as fear and trembling would be to Christ. You don't serve them in order to be, to elevate yourself by pleasing men. You serve those over you as servants of Christ. Are we servants of Christ as Christians? If so, then that service to Christ extends to the service of those who employ us. With that service to Christ extends to the service of those who guide us and give us employment, and and provide for our everyday needs. No matter what we're asked to do, we do this as we do to Christ. Now let's continue here. When we look here at, at the ancient world of masters and slaves and what Paul says here, a master can be seen in one of two different ways. A master is either what we call a despot, that's that's what the Greek origin is, that's where we get the word despot. A, a despot is somebody who uh, who is in authority and in control of everyone under them. You know what a despot is? We, we, we take that idea, that word of a despot, and, and, and we actually use that word and put it upon those who are in government and, and like little minor, these banana republic countries, and they're ruled by a despot, that's the term. The ancient world would have talked about masters in that way as a despot. But Paul, it's interesting, Paul uses a much different word here. Rather than using the word despot here for the masters, Paul uses the word that we translate oftentimes as Lord, the kurios. So Paul is not looking at these masters as the ancient Greek world would have seen them as despots. He sees these masters as lords. Now, there's a, much, there's a big difference here. Because Paul is not talking to Christians who are masters over their household as if they are absolute authorities and can do whatever they want. No, you are a Lord. What does a Lord do? A Lord has the responsibility to care for those underneath them. Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't look to Christ as a despot, as a master that oppresses us at all. So I think Paul's use of words here is very important. He's not talking about earthly masters as despots. He's talking about earthly masters as lords. Those who literally lords according to the flesh. That's what this means to obey your earthly masters. Slaves are to obey these lords according to the flesh. 
Now, these slaves here were bond servants. They were clearly economic slaves. Paul's not talking to slaves here who were enslaved for political reasons. He's talking to slaves who were employed under the economic system. Much different. And we have to understand here that during the uh, antebellum period of the United States, slavery, many masters and slave owners would use this text to force slaves to obey them as their Christian duty. But it's interesting here that Paul uses a much different word here. It's not the despots of the ancient world's understanding of a master. Instead, the master is a Christian who acts as Christ the Lord does. And Paul's talking to these slaves who were economic slaves, not political slaves, much different. I I would argue the Christian ethic here that if you're a political slave, I think the Christian ethic has clearly come to the agreement. You try to get out of that as quickly as you can. You are not ethically bound to political slavery at all. But you are ethically bound as Christians under an economic situation to obey those over you. Here's what Paul says here, verse 6 and 7. You obey not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Right there in verse 7, I don't know if any of you here hate your jobs. I've had many jobs over the years where the my boss was just, there's no nicer way to put it. My, I've worked for some jerks in my time. Have you? That's a nice way to put it. I've worked for some real jerks in my time. And boy, you it is difficult to get to work with a happy Christian attitude when you work in that kind of environment. But man, Paul makes it real clear here in verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. What does that mean? If your master of the flesh is not treating you well, you still serve with a good will as if it was the Lord, not a man. I hate that, but I have to obey. Amen. <laughs> I have to obey, but that's difficult, but we must It's not that we do this in order to earn our salvation, but if we have been bought by Christ, we are expected to be this way. Now, Paul doesn't stop here just with servants and and slaves. See, Paul here is also talking to the masters. Look here in verse 9. Ephesians 6, verse 9, now Paul really addresses the lords here. And I'm going to use that word. I know the translation here says masters, but we also translate the same word as lords. He now tells the masters, do the same to them. Speaking of the servants, if the servants, if the slaves are respecting you, masters, verse 9, masters do the same. if, If the slaves are expected to respect and honor the master. Masters, you must do the same and stop your your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Notice this, that that Paul in verse 9 says to the masters, respect your servants, respect your slaves. Do the same to them and stop your threatening. Has anybody here ever been a supervisor or a boss over other people? 
If you are an employer, if even if you're in the military and you are in leadership, this is fundamental leadership principles here. If you are a master and you are threatening your slaves, Paul tells them, Christian masters, stop it. Because in the economic situation of the Greco-Roman world, masters saw their slaves as, a, as property that they accumulate. And if God has placed these human beings under your protection and under your care, you are responsible as a Christian Lord to not threaten them and beat them and abuse them. You are responsible to treat them as human beings because they are made in the image of God. Here's a radical shift in slavery philosophy that the Christian faith has brought into the discussion. You do not treat slaves as property. You treat them as human beings with God's image. You stop threatening them. You stop abusing them. God has given these human beings to you to care for and to, and to employ. And the result is you as the master and Lord prosper and you share that prosperity with those in your care. So apparently what Paul's writing here, there must have been some problems in the master-slave relationship in the church in Ephesus because he's teaching here very clearly as he's talking to the slaves, his words are very direct but very kind. Obey your masters as if you're obeying the Christ. But to masters, he's making very bold statements. Stop your threatening. Stop treating your slaves as property. Treat them as human beings. Now notice here that this, that, that this language here in chapter 6 verse 9 relates to what Paul says to fathers in chapter 6 verse 4. Remember what did Paul say to the fathers about their children? Fathers were not to provoke their children to anger. Likewise, masters and lords, do not provoke your slaves to run away because you've abused them. Same imagery here. As God the Father loves us, His children, does God the Father threaten us and beat us and abuse us? Absolutely not. But in a household, a Christian household, you're still going to reflect that, that imagery of authority. As God treats His children, we are to treat our children the same. As, God, as the Lord Master of all creation treats creation, with compassion and kindness, masters, you also treat your slaves the same. That's the Christian principle here. Paul forbids treating servants like chattel or treating servants like animals. We don't do that. Christians must treat their household servants with human dignity. Employers, supervisors, treat those under your care the same with human dignity. Masters and lords according to Paul, will give an account to God for their treatment of their servants. Think about this. If the state actually gave freedom to the masters to be despots and abuse their slave property, ponder this in in the biblical narrative. Does the Jewish people, God's people, would they understood slavery and treatment? Absolutely. The one thing that we have to understand here, and, and Paul is somehow, I think Paul is subtly saying this, but God will always listen to the complaints of ill-treated slaves. So if you're a master treating your slaves improperly, 
Notice that there is a biblical pattern here of God listening to the complaints of slaves who have been mistreated. All the way back in Exodus chapter 1, we read about how, uh, how Egypt puts the uh, children of Israel into slavery and begins to treat them harshly because they were a threat. And then in Exodus chapter 2, we see that God heard the groanings and remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's why He sent Moses to free His people from the oppression that they were under. So think about this. Paul here in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9, Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening because there's this background here in God's uh, history with people that He will listen to the cries of the oppressed. If they are ill-treated, if they are mistreated, God hears their prayers and God will always respond. So if you're a master, if you're a supervisor... Trust me, if you are treating those under you with ill intent, guess what? They're praying to God about you. Ponder that. And I think Paul's making that very clear. If you're a master over slaves, there's a biblical history of slaves crying out to God because they've been ill-treated. So masters, don't get yourself in that position. Treat them well so that when, they, when your slaves pray to God, they thank God for you rather than asking God to free them from you. So Paul here is telling Christian masters, here's how you treat your slaves. You are, ob- you are obligated, you must follow the law of love. As God loves people, you must love others. What is the law of love in the Christian tradition in the Scriptures? It's that two-part law of love that Jesus tells the uh, rich young ruler. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So as, how you treat your slaves is exactly reflective of how you love God. Likewise, slaves, just, as just how you relate to your masters is exactly the same as how you relate to God. If you love God, you'll love your master. If you're a master and you love God, you, must, you will love your slaves. It's a two-part reality. And so as Christian obedience results from God's law, as Christian obedience to God's law results from God's grace, obedience to an earthly Lord is also reflection of grace. So if we find ourselves in the position of authority, we, we are obligated to love those under us. If we find ourselves in a position of submission and reporting to someone else in authority, we also as Christians, as we imitate Christ, this is what that looks like. Now, I don't know about you, if, if any of this resonates with you, if... if you're anything like me, I've had to ask for Lord's repent, uh, forgiveness. I've repented of attitudes toward people above me over the years because you just get all bent out of shape and tense, and that's not good. And dear God, I hate going to work, but I'll do it because you want me to. How many of us have had to ask the Lord's forgiveness for ill attitude toward others in employment and those in authority? How many of us have had to ask for the Lord's forgiveness as we've thought ill toward those under us that we have been given responsibility for? I think Paul makes a very clear point here. To imitate Christ means that we love each other as God has loved us. 
And that's the basis. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It's difficult for us in our modern uh, time, in our modern culture, so separated from the ancient world, to not fully understand this master and slave imagery. But dear God, as, as you are master over us, as your Son, Jesus Christ, is our Lord and Savior, we submit as slaves of righteousness to that forgiveness and to that grace. Teach us how to apply that in our relationships with others. Reflect in us, dear God, the love that you have for us as we love others. We thank you, God, for that that responsibility, that, that very precious expression of the gospel. But teach us to do it well. Teach us, Father, to lean on you in how to treat others the way Christ treats us. Forgive us, dear God, where we have failed in that. And I pray, God, that you would always bring Christian brothers and sisters alongside us to encourage us gently and softly and and hold us accountable for how we think of our employer and even how we think of those employees under us. Forgive us, Father, but love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.